Well, when we were a foster home, we would consistently have people saying to us, oh, you guys are like the best people. You guys are definitely going to make it into heaven someday. And it'd be really fun because then you could just say something like, well, actually, we're miserable sinners and we should be in hell. But we're, which is always a weird conversational twist, I understand that. But it, it, it proved the point of their worldview that if you do enough good deeds, that if you're, if you're a good person, you will get into heaven. Good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. If you're a bad person, you do evil things. If you're a good person, you do good things. The only problem with that is the Bible. The only problem with that is none of that is true, and none of that is actually what the Bible says. In fact, as an increasing number of people refuse to believe in a literal heaven, or maybe even more refuse to believe in a literal hell, that belief is even in and of itself becoming marginalized. And Jesus is going to teach us all about this very difficult subject today. So if you're still there or not there, find your way to Matthew chapter 25. And we are drawing near to the cross, church. This week is the final section of Jesus' teaching before the events of the cross are set into motion. And last week we looked at a very, very famous parable, the parable of the talents, and hopefully it, it helped us realize that God has sovereignly ordained our situations and we are to multiply what he has given us for his glory, putting to work what he has given us for his kingdom. Why? Well, for one thing, he's the source of all things. He owns all things and he's given us all things and they're rightfully his in order to be used for his glory in his kingdom. But for another thing, as we've seen time and time again, Jesus talks about the reality of judgment. Just a few uh, verses ago in 2451, Jesus threatened the wicked servant that he will be punished in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In 25 verse 30, last week, we saw Jesus tell the worthless servant that he will be cast into outer darkness where there is again weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who decides who's being cast into this darkness? where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who is the judge? Jesus makes it super clear that only Jesus is the judge. Look at verse 31 that, that Bob has read for us, just to refresh our memories. When the Son of Man comes in His glory with and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And so Jesus transitions again to his return. When he says, the Son of Man will come back again. When I will return. He's talking about his final return in the final judgment. And he's using his favorite messianic term for himself, the Son of Man, which he's used time and time again throughout Matthew. Straight from Daniel talking about the Messiah who will come. And it's very important to realize that. Jesus has a very strong messianic self-consciousness. Jesus understands that he is the Messiah. And Jesus is talking again about the final judgment, his final return, the second coming, whatever you would like to call it, the parousia, when he will come in his glory and all the angels with him and he will sit then on his glorious throne. But, But why a throne? 
When you think of a throne, you think of authority, you think of a king, you think of judgment, you think of power. And so specifically then, this is the final judgment portion of Jesus' return. We have to fill in some blanks from the rest of Scripture in Corinthians and Revelation. We know that there will be a resurrection of the dead, that literally every single human being that has ever been born, those who have died and those that are still alive, will one day stand before the throne of Jesus Christ for judgment. Verse 32 says this as well, people gathered from all the nations, every single one of us, church, Every single human being that has ever lived will face Jesus in judgment and stand before his glory and his glorious throne. And what will happen at that time? Well, Jesus says he's going to separate everyone. He's going to separate everyone. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep will go to his right and the goats to his left. Of course, the right hand of any authority, of any throne, is the one that is preferred. You want to be on the right hand. The right hand shows favor. The right hand shows that there's a a subordination of authority, of goodness that is given. You do not want to be on the left hand. So the sheep go on to the left hand. And of course, we know sheep. It's intentional that he calls them sheep. We are the sheep of his pasture. Christians are the sheep. Jesus is our chief shepherd. All the pastors and elders are under shepherds of the great chief shepherd. But why sheep and the goats? I mean, for us in Sussex County, maybe we can say like horses and cows or something. I don't know. But sheep and goats, they were very prevalent back then. We saw them all over the place. You still see them today in Israel all over the place. Sheep and goats actually, a lot of the times, according to commentators, will be shepherded at the same time by the same shepherd. And so you might have a mixed flock of sheep and goats. And due to the way sheep and goats look in Palestine... You might even not be able to tell them so much apart. They look very much alike. But then there's one place where they do get separated. Every night they get separated. The sheep can stay outside because they've got lots of wool. The goats, not so much. They've got to come inside where they are warm. So again, we see the depth of even the use of sheep and goats in here. That for us, we are all dwelling together. And sometimes you can't so much by looking at a person say, well, that person's a believer and that person's not. But then in the final judgment, there will be a separation. The language that Jesus is using here of separation reminds us of previous parables. The parable of the weeds in chapter 13. I wrote some references down there in your bulletin. Where the weeds grew together with the wheat until the harvest. And then they were cut down and thrown into the fire. And the parable of the net. Where once again, all the fish, the good and bad fish, were dragged into the same net And then they were brought onto the shore. And then the good fish were separated from the bad fish. So I say all that to prove the point that this is not the first time that Jesus is talking about this. This is a repeated point. Judgment coming. There will be a separation. Jesus has said this before time and time again. He's been talking about final judgment and how it will include being separated into one group or another group And so the first point is final judgment includes separation into only one of two groups. Final judgment includes separation into only one of two groups. There are weeds and there are wheat. There are good fish and there are bad fish. There are those on the right and then there are those on the left. There are sheep and there are goats. Final judgment, Jesus tells us, includes separation into only one of two groups. This is exclusive. This is actually mutual 
exclusivity. You can't be a member of both groups. And you can't be a member of neither of the groups. Every single human being will be a member of one of two groups. The exclusive judgment of Jesus is inevitable. And of course, the application when we think about it as Christians in 2022 is powerfully simple. Are we living in light of that reality? Are we living our lives in light that exclusive judgment is coming? Every one of us here today will stand before Jesus and we will end up in one of those two groups. We'll either be on the right hand or the left hand. We'll be a sheep or a goat. Some people spend a lot of time thinking about that. Jonathan Edwards, the last of the Puritans and perhaps greatest, uh, America's greatest theologian, wrote his famous work, Resolutions, when he was 19 years old in the 1720s. He had a few resolutions that showed that he indeed dwelled upon the fact of the last judgment. Resolution number nine, for example, said, Resolved never to do anything that I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Resolution number 51, Resolved that I will act so in every respect as I think I shall wish I had done if I should at least be damned. Resolution 55, Resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. Jonathan Edwards thought about the last judgment. And the reality is that we don't so much. Myself included, on a typical Tuesday, does not really think very much about the reality of the final judgment and the fact that there will be people that will only be in one of two groups standing before the throne of Jesus Christ. Because, as Edwards noted, what actually happens at judgment when our, our, is when our, our lives will be opened up and our deeds will be examined, and that has everything to do with judgment. And that's where Jesus goes next. Look at just verse 34 for us as he addresses the sheep. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we have the first group, the group on the right, the sheep. The sheep are his disciples. We've already said that we are sheep. I will often refer to you all as my sheep. Right? Sheep are disciples of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about somebody else. He talks about the king. Who's the king? Well, the king is him. Jesus is the king. Jesus made it very clear once again that he is the judge. He's the Messiah, but he's also the king. He will say to those sheep on the right, Come, ones blessed by my Father, inherit your kingdom, your kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Jesus powerfully calling his own. Jesus knows who are his own, the elect. Jesus knows his church. Jesus knows his sheep. And he will lose none of whom the Father has given him. And we see in just this one verse the power and the authority of Jesus. He's claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of Man. He's claiming God as his Father. Don't miss that. He called God my Father. That was blasphemy. He's acting as the one who has the authority to admit people into heaven, the kingdom of God. Don't blow by that. Just so much in that verse of who Jesus is. So why are these sheep being admitted? Well, he tells them. Look at verse 35. 
He says, for, meaning because, right? I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus tells them clearly, this is why. Because you, you did these things. You did these things to me. And the sheep, they don't understand what he's talking about. They're surprised. Note that Jesus already calls them, he calls them the righteous. He says, listen, you who are, are righteous, the, the sheep, that is their identity. Hold on to that. Look at verse 37. This is the response. And, and then the righteous will answer him saying, um, Lord, uh, when? when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick in prison and, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. They don't understand. We don't get it. What do you mean? You were never any of those things. We never helped you in any of those ways. I don't understand. And Jesus says, oh, oh but you did. You actually, you actually did. You treated the least of these, and watch this. This is critical for understanding this passage. My brothers. He said, the least of these, my brothers. And if you did it to them, you did it to me. Now, usually at this point, a sermon's going to take a right turn and start to lay heavily on the guilt of how we have to then have compassion on the least of those. That we should go and scour the countryside for those who are oppressed or poor or sick or in prison or homeless or naked, and we should be the ones that clothe them. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I am saying that that's not the main point of this passage. And three reasons. First, number one, Jesus is talking to the sheep. He's already said they're already his. They're already believers. He's not talking about making them sheep or goats. They're already sheep. He's just separating them. He's separating the sheep. They're already his. They aren't earning their way into the kingdom. It's already their identity. They're already sheep. But second, the sheep are surprised. The sheep are like, that's why we're getting into the kingdom of heaven? That, first of all, we didn't remember ever doing that to you, Jesus. But second, they're surprised that it would be their works that would earn their way into the kingdom of heaven. But third, Jesus says that they did these things to the least of these, and again, I'll point you to those words, my brothers. And it is the consistent testimony of scriptures from the words and the, the lips of Jesus himself that my brothers means disciples. There are several places in scripture where this is noted. Again, I put a bunch of those references in there. I'll leave that for your care groups or your personal reflection but if we just look at one from Jesus himself, so you don't know I'm not making this up. Chapter 12, look at verse 46 where he is questioned again. As while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and, the brother, and his brothers stood aside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
Jesus makes it absolutely clear that when he references the word Jesus, he is talking about someone who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. The sheep on the right are not people who are standing before God to be granted access into the kingdom based on what they did, based on good works. They are already his sheep. They are already his disciples. They are being admitted into the kingdom, what has already been prepared for them as his sheep. So here's another point. Good deeds are not the way into the kingdom of heaven. Good deeds are not the way into the kingdom of heaven. And there are a few complementary and very important concepts to bring out here. First, these people are standing before the throne. They're not getting into heaven based on their good deeds. Rather, they're getting into the kingdom based on who they are. And that has everything to do with how they treated who? His brothers, Jesus' disciples. Not just the 12, but all of the anyone who believed in Jesus Christ, right? How were the disciples of Jesus Christ treated at that time? Pretty lousy. They were oppressed, they were marginalized, they were persecuted. Eventually, they're even going to be martyred. But he says, how did you do, what did you do, how did you treat the least of these, my brothers? Did you reject them like everybody else, or did you welcome them? Did you... Did you take the message that they were sharing and did you reject it or did you accept it? The sheep, the righteous, welcomed them in. They fed them, they clothed them, and most importantly, watch this, they accepted their message of the gospel as truth. And I would make the point that in context here, Jesus is not talking about exclusively just oppressed homeless people in general, but he's directly talking about his disciples. How did you treat my disciples? How did you treat my messengers? Did you welcome them? Did you reject them? What did you think of their message? Did you accept it? Did you reject it? But, and I can feel some of you kind of saying, okay, get to it. Okay, here it is. I'm not saying that we have to neglect the needs of the poor, the homeless, the hungry. If anything, Christians, we should be the ones leading the way on that. Churches were the ones who established the orphanages. Churches were the ones who established the foster care system, freed the slaves, the ones who, who made hospitals and schools. We're the ones, and we've lost our way in that. And we need to continue to do that. We can't lose both. It's both. They're not being admitted into heaven because of their good deeds. But Christians, we better have some good deeds because that's what we're called to. Our faith needs to have accompanying good works but good works is not the way into heaven. There's a tension. Maybe some of you are thinking of the book of James. In James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. I hope you, everything works out okay. Be warm and be filled without giving him the things that he actually needs for his body, what good is it? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's a critical distinction that we have to cut very, very clearly here. They are not getting into heaven based on their good works, but everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ should have good works. As Luther or Calvin said it, Different people say that different people or maybe both of these guys said it. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works, good deeds. The salvation by works 
is the most significant misunderstanding of Christianity there is. It is in the air that we breathe. If we do enough good deeds, we will get into heaven. This is the end. This is the judgment. There's no cosmic divine scale here where Jesus is going to open the books and he's going to look at everything that you did and he's going to place all your good deeds on one side and your bad deeds on the other and you're going to have that moment where you're going to see which one outweighs the other and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then guess what? You get into heaven. That's not how it works. We have the full testament of the full testimony of scripture, the New Testament, the epistles to tell us that. We are saved by faith alone, grace alone in Christ alone. That is how we are saved. But you better believe if you're saved, you better have some good works to go along with that. And so I'll ask all of us, myself included, what good works are in your life that testifies to your faith? Because there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment for everyone, Christians included. Now, remember, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We will not be judged. Christians will not be judged for our sin. We just talked about that here at the table. Our sin is completely paid for. The wrath of God is completely satisfied, propitiated, if you want the big word, by Jesus' death. We receive that through faith. And so then our sin is completely paid for, but we will be judged for our works, what we did with what God gave us. There are varying levels of rewards in heaven. There are varying levels of punishment in hell. So we have to remember that. What good deeds are in your life today that reflect your faith? The life of the faithful disciple is characterized by a deep faith in Christ Jesus that is seen, that, is, that manifests itself in good works those sheep will be rewarded as they enter the kingdom of heaven. But we also have another group here. We have a group on the left, the goats. Let's look at them. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when? When did we see you uh, thirsty or hungry or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? Then he will answer to them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus then describes what will happen to those on his left, the goats. He will say to them, or rather as it actually is in the Greek, it's a full-blown command. He will command them, depart from me. Get away from me. You're cursed. You are not blessed. You are cursed. Instead of sending them into the kingdom of heaven, they are being sent, once again, watch it, on the authority of Jesus Christ into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is not talking about heaven, rather he's talking about hell and, and eternal hell. And the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is not one that's very popular to preach on, but here we are. This is why we go through books of the Bible and we just march right through. Whatever is coming up, that's what we preach through because then we don't skip the tough stuff. 
Not many pastors wake up on a Sunday morning and say, yeah, I think I'll talk about the eternal torment and punishment in hell today. That'll pack them in. That's a church growth strategy right there. It's hard stuff, and we have to face it because it's in the Bible. We have to understand it. Two things to pick up right away about the doctrine of hell. First note that Jesus himself says that this is eternal punishment. This isn't purgatory. This isn't annihilationism where we just merely poof, cease to exist. This is eternal fire and hell, and it is conscious where there's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth. You're understanding the punishment that you're in, and you're also understanding that it's eternal, that you have no hope of escape. Maybe the fire isn't literal, but fire always accompanies judgment, and it's the eternal punishment that we have clearly in verse 46. So the first thing is that this is eternal punishment, but the second thing in the doctrine of hell that is always misunderstood and very much misunderstood in just culture at large is who's in charge of hell? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one saying, no, you go to the eternal fire that I have prepared for the devil and his demons and his helpers. Jesus is the one. It's common fallacy to think, maybe like this guy right here, that, that there is a Satan that is in charge of hell and he's red, I guess, and got a horns on his head and a forked tail and a pitchfork and he's standing over gleefully the punishment of all these people in hell. That is not the picture of Scripture. If you, and I pray that this never happens, but if you are one of those who will end up in eternal hell, Satan will be standing right next to you, being punished right along with you, just like Jesus has told him to. This is nonsense. This is not true. Satan is not in charge of hell. Jesus is. And he tells us that clearly. But also, just like the sheep, Jesus tells them that they will be punished in hell because they saw his brothers, the least of these, and they disregarded them. They saw them hungry, thirsty, homeless, naked, sick, in prison, and they did nothing. They rejected them because of who they are and the message that they were bringing. And like the sheep, the goats will be surprised by this. And they say, Jesus, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Hold on here. Let's talk about this. You we never saw you. We, we never knew that you were hungry or thirsty or homeless or in prison or sick. You could almost feel them say like in parentheses, because if we did, we surely would have helped you. They're, they're, they're surprised by this sentence and they say, this is, this is not true. And Jesus said, oh, it is true. Because you didn't welcome the least of these. You didn't welcome my disciples. You didn't welcome my brothers. You didn't welcome the message that they had, and therefore you didn't welcome me, he says. You didn't regard them, so you didn't regard me. Depart from me. He says you rejected them, and therefore you rejected me. So that's the third point. Rejecting Jesus is the way to hell. Rejecting Jesus is the way to hell. The doctrines of final judgment and eternal punishment in hell are two of the most hated doctrines in Christianity. And for me, and if you're visiting today, welcome to Highlands Bible Church. <laughs> but in a way, it should be 
the most hated doctrine in all of Christianity. If you stop and you think about this, I struggle with this because we think about friends and family and others who because they reject Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in hell. Nobody should be okay with that. That should, that should do something to us. We have to be very clear on what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that bad people go to hell. Jesus is saying that people who reject him go to hell. It's not those who ignore the needs of the poor and the oppressed to go to hell. It's those, or are not those who don't have time for the helpless and the oppressed. It's those who reject Jesus that go to hell. And the world hates this. Atheists and agnostics and progressive Christianity and secular humanism, they all rail against this doctrine. If they believe in the doctrine of hell at all, which most of those groups do not, they mock it and they say, really, poor Jesus. People reject him. They don't accept his little message of the gospel. And so he's all heard about that. So he's just going to send everybody to eternal punishment. Or, or maybe they lived a life that wasn't exactly what he said. And so therefore, for their, for their temporary life on earth where they didn't do what Jesus wanted him to, then he's going to punish them in eternal hell. Even if that were true, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. That makes no sense, Christian. What kind of sick, twisted God would send people to hell for rejecting him? And all we have to say to that is this is where we've caved into a super low view of God's holiness, his person, who God is. Wayne Grudem says the argument that eternal punishment is unfair because there's a disproportion between temporary sin and eternal punishment wrongly assumes that we know the extent of the evil done when sinners rebel against God. Another theologian puts it this way, sin against the creator is so heinous to a degree utterly beyond our sin-warped imagination's ability to conceive of it. We can't even understand What an offense our sin is to a perfectly holy God. And so when we start to think about how terrible this is, church, it is terrible, but we have to balance that with the perfect holiness of God. And that's on a level that we can't even understand. Jesus, the rightful king and judge of all humanity, and for someone to spit in his face and reject him, and that punishment is too severe We don't understand who God truly is. We also have a sense of comfort, though, in the judgment of God. And you might think that's weird, but church, if we're sinned against in heinous ways, we have child molesters and rapists and murderers and ISIS terrorists who just refuse and never brought to justice, they will never outrun the justice of God. And so if we have been sinned against in some of these ways and we don't have that resolution, this little bit of God's judgment, that's where evil never gets away with it. They will not escape judgment. They can't escape judgment. They can't outrun the judgment of God. Eventually, everyone who ever lived will stand before him. And so maybe I'll say it this way as I land the plane. Jesus is the true judge of eternity. Jesus is the true judge of eternity. Jesus Christ alone, when he returns in final judgment, will sit on his throne as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he alone will separate every single human being into only one of two groups, 
One group will be granted access by the authority of King Jesus into the kingdom of heaven, which has been prepared for them because they are the sheep. They are the brothers. They have believed in Jesus Christ. And they have good works that reflect who they are. The other group will be commanded by King Jesus into the eternal fire of hell, prepared for Satan, because rejecting Jesus is certainly that way to hell. And so much massive practical application here, church. First, maybe obviously, what group are we in? Now's the time to know that. Not when you stand before heaven and you kind of wait for Jesus to make his decision. We, we figure out what group we're in right now by either believing in Jesus, understanding the holiness of God a little bit as we sit. That's why I had you guys look at Leviticus 19 this morning to just get a taste of the holiness of God. We understand that. We understand the depth of our sinfulness, right? And then we have, what, what hope do we have? Well, the hope that we've been singing about all morning, the hope of Jesus Christ. The hope that he's given us, his son, at great personal cost to himself to then bridge the gap, to pay for our sins so that we can then be reconciled with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the first application is, which group are you in? We decide that now. We know that now. If we, we have accepted it as truth, we are sheep. If you reject it as nonsense and continue to, you are a goat. But secondly, if we are sheep, then our lives should look like it. And again, we should have lives that are full of good deeds. While you can't use this passage to guilt people into caring for the homeless and the hungry, the reality is that Jesus' sheep have to care about the homeless and the hungry. You've got to be very careful the way that you cut that and interpret that. And third, and least popular probably of all, the doctrine of eternal hell is real. It's a real thing. We believe in a literal hell, not because that's what we believe in our own little cult-like place here, but because that's what Jesus just said. We believe in a little... Jesus had more to say about hell than any of the other authors of Scripture. Rejecting Jesus is the way to hell, and Jesus tells us that heaven is eternal, and therefore so is hell. You can't get around eternal punishment in verse 46. Just like heaven is eternal, so is hell. It's incredibly hard. But are we being faithful brothers in Jesus, of Jesus by sharing the message of the spiritual realities that work every single day in the lives of every single person that is walking the face of this earth, that are distracted by our comforts and our activities and our jobs and our kids' sports and all that stuff, not knowing that they're a goat headed for hell. Until someone like us opens our mouths and shares the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. And fourth, are we living faithfully in light of the fact that one day we will stand before God. We don't get out of this, church. We will stand before Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the true judge of eternity. And he will look at our deeds and he will judge them for rewards. Again, we won't be judged for our sin. That happened centuries ago on the cross. But the books will be opened and he will look at our lives. And as we talked about last week, there's going to be a sense of loss on that day. First Corinthians tells us that. We're man, if we had just taken this a little more seriously. 
if I just thought of that day a little bit more where I would be standing before Jesus Christ and he would look at my life. If I just thought about all the ways that I could be utilizing the things in my life for the glory of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Do you even think about that fact? Jesus will open the books of our lives, church, and he will judge every deed we've ever done. If you want to be more terrified, the Bible says that we will give an account for every careless word that we have spoken. How many words do we speak every day? Resources, what he's given us. He's given us our mouths. He's given us words. Are we using them for his glory? Are we using them in a way that will earn us rewards or forego those rewards? Our Lord Jesus is not only our Savior, he's the true and perfect judge. And we have to cultivate that awareness that one day every one of us will stand before his throne and church again. It's not just getting swept up into what is going to exactly happen on that day and when it's going to happen and what it's going to look like. The message of Jesus these past three weeks that we've been focusing on the end times is prepare now because it's inevitable. Prepare now. And we prepare now, as hopefully some of you did as we were, we were celebrating the Lord's table together with that bit of thankfulness. But yeah, I don't have to stand before Jesus and be terrified if I'm going to go to hell. Because of faith in what he did, I have assurance I won't. And so when we do, we are so thankful for what Jesus has done for us. But church, let's get to work in remembering that Jesus is the perfect judge of eternity. Father, we thank you so much. And it sounds weird to say that. When... when this passage that you have spoken with your own words in Jesus. Lord, we think about these eternal realities in heaven and hell and we think about our unsaved family and friends and Lord, the prospect of them spending eternity in hell is terrible for us to think about. Let us be faithful now with what you've given us in opening our mouths and sharing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us be faithful with what you've given us, Lord, to multiply what you've given us for your glory. Let us look and strive with everything that we have for all the spiritual and heavenly rewards we can possibly get on that day. And let us do so in full thankfulness and gratitude for our Lord and our Savior and our perfect judge, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.